become misfortune. <laughs> I'm watching you. Hey guys, welcome to episode 51 of Macabre Misfortunes. What's going on, everybody? I didn't get to say my name yet. Oh, shoot. That's Jerry, and I'm Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tracy. This week has definitely been a struggle. We, uh, I had to not do an episode of Eerie Encounters. So, it's, um, it's tougher than I thought it was going to be, but we're, we're, we'll get through these eventually. But there might be... Uh, missing episode or two over the next couple of weeks while I regain all my strength. Yeah, please forgive us. We're trying. I'm trying to beat him like with a bat, but... Regardless, some days I just push myself too hard, and then the next day I'm literally crap the entire day. I know. It's taking so, you a little longer to come around. I don't, uh, so. A whole lot longer than what I thought it would be, so... But we love you guys. Thanks for hanging in there with us. And for some reason, my voice is all scratchy all of a sudden, and I don't know where the heck that came from, so... Yeah. <laughs> All right, so Tracy, we have heard it said over the years, many, many, many times, patience is a virtue. That's what they say. Well, today's story is actually going to prove just that. In this episode, we are going to Salem, Massachusetts. The year is 1830. Now, today's subject, 82 years... Oh! <laughs> Try that again. Today's subject... 82-year-old Captain Joseph White. So let's get to know our uh, captain just a little bit. The only thing we really need to know is that he was a very wealthy retired widower. He had no family really to speak of, except he lived with a handyman by the name of Benjamin White. His niece, Mary Beckford, Okay. And then he also had uh, a young lady by the name of Lydia Kimball who lived with him that was more of a servant, we'll say. Okay. Now, his niece, Mary Beckford, she was his housekeeper. So everybody that lived there had some type of role, even family member. Mm -hmm. Mary's going to kind of be our focal point of the story. Well, technically, I'm not even going to say... Mary, which is his niece, it was actually her daughter who's also named Mary, his great niece. Okay. She lived with them up until about three years earlier than where we're at right now, 1830. That's when she married a man by the name of Joseph Jenkins Knapp Jr. Now, Captain White was not a big fan of Mr. Knapp, and he didn't approve of his great niece marrying him. Mary and Joseph, though, not that Mary and Joseph. <laughs> Mary and Joseph now lived about seven miles from Salem in a place called Wenham, Massachusetts. Joseph at one point was a previous um, master of a ship that Captain White owned, and that's how the two knew each other. Now, why he didn't like him, I have no idea. 
Maybe but, he knew something on him or something. Well, and it could just be a situation where he had money and didn't think that his Couldn't trust family, him, maybe. Well, he thought maybe his family should have, shouldn't have been with somebody that's just an average Joe. Uh, rude. But, now, the details here can get a little sketchy, but as far as I know, these are most of the details. The main story goes that Joseph Knapp ran into some financial problems and he approached Captain White for some financial assistance. To which Captain White, not liking him and not approving of the marriage to his niece, refused. Well, Joseph knew that this old man kept his will in his bedroom in a, like a dresser drawer. So Knapp, knowing that Captain White only had a few relatives. He figured that, you know what, if Captain White dies without a will, the money would be evenly distributed amongst his relatives, mm -hmm. which meant he and his mother-in-law and his wife would stand to inherit a lot of money. This guy was worth about $200,000, which was a ton oh, sure. in 1830. Heck yeah, it was. So he devised a plan along with his brother, John Francis Knapp, to have someone, a criminal that was in town that they knew, break in to his house, steal the will, get that to him so he could destroy it, but at the same time, kill the captain. So they hire a local criminal by the name of Richard Crowninshield to kill Captain White and steal this will. On April 6, 1830, two brothers actually waited outside the house. Richard Crowninshield went inside the house through the window. He went into the captain's bedroom, and while the captain was sleeping, he fractured the old man's skull with a club and stabbed him 13 times with a dagger. He then stole the will. He gave it to Joseph, who Joseph then burned the will so there was no copy. Well, <laughs> the next day, the town of Salem was shocked by the gruesome murder. This was a really well-respected man. Mm -hmm. And now he's dead, and there was no signs of robbery or anything. So nothing appeared to be out of sorts. And there was plenty of, this man had plenty of wealthy uh, objects and stuff in his house that were not taken. So that seemed strange. Well, I mean, did he have a lawyer that knew he had a will? You're too smart for your own good sometimes. Oh. You just hold off on that factor. Oh, heck far. Okay. I'm excited. <laughs> But apparently that wasn't the only crime that night. Because you see, the Knapp brothers also said that they were robbed. And I'll finish telling you about it right after this quick sponsor break. By three men on the road that leads from Salem to Wenham. Okay. Which is where they lived. So now, obviously, they're just trying to complicate matters. And make it look like, you know, oh, well, there must have been some, you know, yeah. some rough, roughnecks in town yeah. that were doing all this stuff. The brothers ran into a little bit of bad luck, though. You see, the man that they were that they hired to do this, he apparently had a big mouth. Brother. And he had talked to a gentleman by the name of Charles Grant up in Maine. Well, Charles Grant figured he wanted in on a little bit of this. 
So, so he bribed him, I guess. Well, he sends a letter to the, the police department, basically. Well, he actually didn't send it to the police department. It ended up in the police department. He sent a letter to the Knapp's dad. And it basically was like a blackmail letter. It's like, hey, um, unless you want a lot of trouble, you need to contact me. So the brothers were like, oh, crap. Well, this turned into a whole big thing, Yeah, didn't it? somebody knows what's going on. So the brothers decided, well, we're going to write a couple of letters, and we're going to frame him for it. We're going to say he wanted payment for the murder. So Joseph Knapp writes two letters, basically saying, hey, I did this, and B, I, I want payment for, the, for this crime. Mm -hmm. Well, the police go up to arrest this, this uh, Charles Grant guy. They waited at the mailbox. When he gets there, they go down and they find out, you know what? It wasn't this guy. This guy says, no, it was the brothers who were behind all this. As you can imagine, there was some confusion. And then they find out the guy's name's not even Grant, it's Palmer. <laughs> it's a completely different name. They waited for him at his mailbox at the post office when he went to get his mail when they arrested oh. him. So that's how they found out his real name and everything. Then they also found out that he was an associate of, of Crown and Shield. They basically, he agreed, I'll tell you everything I know so I don't get prosecuted. And the police agreed. Next thing you know, Joseph Knapp and his brother, Johnny Knapp, were being arrested. And on the third day of them being held, Joseph Knapp actually confessed to the murders, to the conspiracy, making up the robbery, everything. That, you know what? We did it. I didn't physically kill him, but we did set it up. He said that he kept hearing voices in his head. He kept hearing and seeing visions of the old man, the captain himself, and it was tormenting him to the point where he had to confess. Oh, <laughs> boy, that backfired, didn't it? After hearing the confession, Richard Crowning Shield saw the writing on the wall, and he hung himself in his jail cell with a handkerchief tied to the bars. How is that impossible? I don't know. I was trying to picture it myself. I mean, the handkerchiefs are not big. Well, that's only, well, it's designed to go around your throat, so... That's, yeah, but that's still for that. kind of crazy. I guess so. The Knapp brothers were tried as accessories to murders, but back then, there were laws that existed that accessories could not be convicted unless the actual murder was first convicted. And Crowning Shield's suicide made that impossible. So it appeared that the Knapp brothers would get away with murder. Wow. Not so fast, though. You've probably heard the name Daniel Webster. There was a book, The yeah. Devil and Daniel Webster. Mm -hmm. He was a famous attorney at the time, and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts actually grabbed him. Even though he was typically a defense attorney, they grabbed him and asked him to prosecute this case. And he was able to show that by the men actually being on the premises, even though they weren't part of the murder they were on the premises and that was all they really needed to convict them of the crime because not only did they know what was going on they didn't prevent it 
both of the brothers were convicted and they were both hanged on the same scaffold oh, at the same time. Oh, my Lord. So here they thought they got away with it and turn around and bam. Absolutely. So remember the whole patience being a virtue thing we talked about? Mm-hmm. With this, <laughs> the, Joseph stole the will. Right. He destroyed it. Mm-hmm. But then you made a comment about, did he not have an attorney? That's exactly what happened. Mr. White had an attorney. The attorney had a copy of the newest will. The newest will actually would have left $15,000 to them, which in today's money is $400,000. Holy crap. If he'd have just been patient, this 82-year-old man would have died eventually, and they would have had the equivalent of $400,000. So now they're dead with nothing. They're dead with nothing. I'm sure his wife got the money. Well, yeah, but still, oh my gosh. Now, here's a fun fact for you. I'd like to give you fun facts on all these. This story, if you think about it, if if you really know your, your literature from that time period, and you think about the fact that somebody comes into an old man, stabs and kills him, and then is tortured by his visions and sounds, to where he confesses, it may sound a little familiar to a story that Edgar Allan Poe did called The Telltale Heart, which was loosely based upon this story. Oh, no kidding. That happened. So, well, yeah. how interesting is that? I'll be dang. But really cool story, I thought. That was a good story. Duh. And that's something. He just waited. Yeah. And all this because he thought. Now, there is another story. There is another version of this story. I won't get into all the details that said that he killed him based on the fact that they weren't listed in the will. And he felt like that everybody, there was a lot of relatives that were listed, but he felt like that if he destroyed the will, that all the money would have went to his stepmother. Mm-hmm. And then eventually that would have all been his because it would have got passed down or she would have shared it or something. Yeah. So there is another version that says it didn't have anything to do with him asking for money and getting returned or uh, turned down. It was more about him just knowing that the will existed and that they were only getting a small part and he wanted a bigger chunk of the pie. So I don't know what, which one is more realistic. I read five different versions of this and three of them said one, two of them said the other. And one, well, actually I read six because the other one said both. So that's what happens when you're a greedy mofo. Yeah. They'll come back and bite you in your butt every time. So, all right, guys, that wraps it up for this week. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Bye.